In the book, Words We Live By, by Brian Burrell, Burrell talks about uh, an armed robber by the name of Dennis Lee Curtis. He was arrested in 1992, and when he was arrested, they were going through his stuff, and they found in his wallet uh, a sheet of paper. And on the sheet of paper in his wallet, what was written was a, a sort of a a robber's rules, not Robert's rules, but robber's rules. It was his code of conduct, okay? So I'm just going to read for you what he had written on this sheet of paper. He said, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. All right? I will take cash and food stamps, but no checks. I will rob only at night. I'm not sure why it's better at night than it is during the daytime. He said, I will not wear a mask. He's not going to hide behind a mask. He said, I will not rob mini marts or 7-Elevens. <laughs> this one, you know, th- this one's interesting, I guess. He said, if chased by cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. Well, there's something, right? (laughs) I don't know what the reason for this is. He said, though, I will only rob, and this is number seven, by the way, I will only rob seven months out of the year. So he takes (laughs) the other months off, okay? uh, He said, I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. I wonder how often he did that. The point being that... Even this thief had some sort of a code of conduct, a sense of morality. Certainly, it was flawed, okay? A flawed sense of morality, but a sense nonetheless. But here's the deal. When he got, he was arrested, that's how they found this. Um, So when he was arrested and he was brought before the court, do you think he was judged based on his set of standards or... The law's set of standards. He was judged based on the law that had been established by the state that he was in, and he was held accountable according to that law. Whatever his code of conduct was, it didn't really matter if it didn't match up with what the standard that it had been established was. Now, you and I, when we stand before God, in judgment, and we all will. There'll be a judgment of the righteous, which we're going to talk about today for those who are followers of Christ, and there's going to be a judgment of the wicked, those who are, who are lost. When we stand before God in judgment, we're not going to be judged based on our set of standards, what we felt was right or wrong, what we felt was important or not. We're going to be judged based on God's set of standards, on what He said is right and wrong. What he says is right and wrong on what truth is that he has established. And for believers, we're going to be judged based on what he, the gifts he gave us, what he told us to do, and whether or not we obeyed him in that, whether or not we served him faithfully. That is the standard that we're going to be judged by, God's perfect law. Now, for the believer, for Christians, our sins are forgiven. We've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. 
And he defeated death, and we live in him. We have the assurance of eternal life. We are no longer uh, bound by sin. We are destined for heaven. We will not face the great white throne of judgment, the judgment of the wicked, but we will face a judgment nonetheless, and we will be judged not to determine whether or not we enter heaven. We will be judged based on our works and how good we were, how good of stewards we were with what God gave us in this life. In his book, In the Light of Eternity, Randy Alcorn states this. He says, a moment after man dies, he knows exactly how he should have lived. The absolute certainty of death gives the gospel its urgency. Jim Elliott, we're headed to Ecuador week after next. The famous missionary, Jim Elliott, and those with him uh, who were martyred for the gospel in Ecuador said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Paul told the Romans uh, and in Romans 14.10 that one day we would face, we all would face the judgment seat or the bema for believers, Romans 14.10, but you do know, uh, but, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is one of the reasons, this, this knowledge that we are going to stand before God and be held accountable for how we lived our lives, this is one of the reasons we're in the series that we're in. This series on the end times. And the theme of our series uh, is end times, be encouraged, live with expectation. We should be encouraged by the fact that we know what's coming. We don't know all the details, but we know what's coming. We know the Lord will return. And so we know what we should do while we wait for his return. And so being encouraged that he is coming back for us, we should be motivated to live in anticipation of his return. And we're learning that we can be prepared. We can be. We don't have to just sit and wait or run and hide. We can be prepared. Even, even for what we're talking about today, and that's this judgment seat, the Bema, the judgment seat uh, of Christ. And because we know that's coming, because that this idea of preparation is the basis for this series... We know we can be prepared because God has given us the information that we need to be prepared for Christ's return and to live faithfully as we wait. So that word, bema, the judgment seat, as it's translated, it was a step. It was, it was uh, actually a place where an official sat to judge, be it um, in, a, in a court hearing type situation or the games where the judge was was judging the athletes who won or lost how they perform it, it resembles a throne that Herod built in the the theater of Caesarea by the sea from which he used he would look he would watch the games that were unfolding before him he would make speeches to the people from this seat in Acts 24 and 25, it was here Paul stood before Felix and later Agrippa. Festus is mentioned in Acts 25, 6, sitting on the judgment seat. In Acts 25, 10, 
Paul desiring, he, he wants to make his appeal before Rome, and he says this. He says, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. That's the bema. That's, that's the word that's used here. And so what we learn from Paul's words is that we will all stand before God's judgment seat, his bema. We will stand before him, and every believer, all of us who, who are saved, will have to give an account of our actions, of the way that we lived our lives. Again, this isn't, you know, saved or not saved. If you, It's not you pass a test and get into heaven, but there is going to be a time where we stand before Christ and answer for how we lived, what we did with all that he gave us, empowered us with. And Paul, knowing this and believing this, wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him, pleasing to God. He's talking about his desire, his ambition in life. That phrase, pleasing to him, it actually describes a slave who desires to work in a way that's pleasing to his master. And that's, you know, we belong to Christ. He's bought us. We are his. And we should want to live in a way, work in a way, serve in a way that pleases him just as Paul did. So what we need in order to do this is to have an eternal perspective. We've got to be able to look beyond the temporary, the here and now, and look ahead to eternity and, and live our lives as an investment in that. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15 is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to read through those verses together. Verses 10 through 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And, and from this, we're going to, to gain some instructions, some things that we, we know we should do uh, as we wait for Christ's return in light of the fact that we know we're going to stand before him and be held accountable for how we live. Looking at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation, Paul says, as a skilled master builder. And another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Remember, at the, the bema, the judgment seat of the Lord, he, God, Christ, will evaluate the believer's life, our life, for the purpose of giving eternal rewards. Now, we don't know exactly what those rewards are, but we know that they're mentioned a few times in Scripture. We know that he will reward us based on the work that we have done. Heavenly rewards. The last part, going to uh, ahead to 2 Corinthians 5.10 again. I read it just a few minutes ago. The last part of that verse says, So that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I think the, the Holman translates that useless. Good or useless. And we'll get into that a little more in a few moments. But, but this, is, this is talking about actions. 
Um, you know, the, whether it's not, it's, it's not a, it's, it's actions based on our, our earthly time, our earthly ministry. He's talking to believers and he's talking about our actions. And it's, it's not whether or not, it's not really talking about uh, good or evil in terms of sin versus not, although it is a sin not to, to be a good steward of what God gives you. But what it's talking about is the, the works, the deeds that we perform, whether or not they will last or not, whether or not they will, will go through eternity or not, whether or not we're investing in eternity or not, or whether they will be useless, worthless. Uh, the believer, for those of us who know Christ, our sins are forgiven. We, we stand in right fellowship, right relationship with God. Been, our sins have been fully atoned for by his death, but, but we still have a responsibility to live the way that he requires us to, to serve him faithfully, and we can live in disobedience to what he's called us to do. So there's going to be a judgment. As a result of all of this, there's going to be a judgment where we will be judged on the works that we've done, and we will be rewarded if we are faithful for those works. So there are two lessons that I want us to, to draw from this text that will hopefully motivate us to live in anticipation of the return of Christ in a way to where we will be found faithful when he does return. Two lessons. First is this. The reality of judgment challenges me in this life. You know, one, one glaring truth in this, one thing that we should all take away from the fact that we know we're going to stand before Christ and have to answer for how we lived, that reality should challenge me in this life to live for Him. It makes me want to work with wisdom. It makes me want to work with urgency. And we want God's judgment we all should want God's judgment to be the same as in Matthew 25, 23. The master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Well done, good and faithful servant. That should be what we all desire to hear from Christ when we stand before him. Because we believe this truth in Revelation twenty two twelve. Jesus said, look, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me to repay each one according to his work. You know, Paul talked a lot about running the race. He talked about fighting the good fight. He talked about building a life. You know, Corinth was a booming city. All right, so an agricultural reference probably wouldn't have been as effective here. So because it's a booming city... Things are being built. Paul uses a building reference here, appropriately, because those in the city would have been able to identify with this building reference. Uh, and, you know, we look at a building, and, I mean, we can all identify here somewhere. You know, there are some of us who may know nothing about farming, so an agricultural reference might require a little bit of explaining for even us. Right? But we all can identify on some level with the reference that Paul's using here. It doesn't take a real keen eye to identify a building that's not in good shape. I mean, you can identify a building even that wasn't built on a good foundation. Um, if it's falling apart, if it's leaning, if, uh, if, if there's several things wrong with it, 
and, and you see another building that's the same age that, that shows some age, but it's solid, it's well built, it's, it's holding up a house, you know, that's holding up. Uh, and and you, you know that one of those houses, one of those buildings was built better than the other. And so he, he talks about the importance of building on the right foundation. And we can identify with that. We want our houses to have a good foundation. If you don't, if they don't, all kinds of problems, not the least of which being, you know, financial, how much it's going to cost to fix it, right? But safety, all of those things. We want the building that we gather in to be on a good foundation, to be built well with the right materials. And Paul talks about the builder, the foundation, the materials, and the inspection. And then he also talks about the workers that are doing the building here. He presents himself as the master builder, he says. He laid the foundation, and somebody else was building on it. The word master builder or wise builder means a builder and a designer. It's, it's kind of like a combination of a, an architect and a general contractor, all rolled up into one. That's how Paul is, is describing his role in this. He oversees the various elements of the construction progress, uh, process from design to completion. I mean, and, and, and others do the work. You know, it's not... Paul is not the foundation, but he, he laid the foundation. He poured the foundation. He, he's not a removed outside observer. He is involved, Paul is. He is part of the construction progress uh, process. He is, he is one of the workers. Yes, he is a head worker. He is a leader, but he is one of the workers, along with those others who are working and serving. His initial role was to lay the foundation. Now, he's done that, and others are coming along, and they are supposed to be building on the foundation that he has laid. And, and the question is whether or not they're building with the right materials. They're building uh, the right way, which we see they're not. Some are not, at least. Uh, he's not bragging about his role. He's, call, he, he's call, his calling and effectiveness, his own words, were only by the grace of God that was given to him. So he's not, he's not inflating his own position in this or his ego. But he was skilled, verse 10. And this is spiritual wisdom he's talking about, but he's also talking about practical wisdom. I mean, he's, you know, God's giftedness uh, plus, you know, his own ability. Of course, we're given him by God as well, but, you know, he's, his ability to use, to have the wisdom to use what God gave him and to depend on God to be able to accomplish this purpose that God has given him. Verse 10, again, each one is to be careful how he builds on it, the foundation that's been laid. That, that phrase, each one, in verse 10, shows us that this principle that he's teaching about applies to every single believer. It's not just a few. It's not just, not just the Corinthians. This applies to everyone, all of us who are followers of Christ. Paul was the foundation builder. He was the planter. He established the doctrines, the principles of belief, the practices that had been revealed to him by God. These are all God's principles, standards, doctrines. But God revealed them to Paul. And Paul established the church that he founded here based on these principles, these doctrines that, that God had revealed to him. That was the foundation that he had laid. And anyone building on Paul's foundation, Paul is warning, needed to be careful how he built on that foundation. 
what materials he used, um, the, the doctrines, the beliefs, the practices that that person used. And again, this applies to all of us because we are all building on that same foundation in the church. He also rebuked some leaders here who obviously were not building the right way. They were not being careful how they built. They were not using the right materials. They were not doing what they were supposed to. They were not being faithful. And this shows that they, Paul built wisely, and some who followed him built wisely, but not all built wisely. Some were not building wisely at all. Some of the Christian, the Corinthian leaders. Paul lays the foundation, verse 10, again, another builds on it, he says. You had Apollos in, in Corinth, Timi, Timothy in Ephesus. They were building wisely on the foundation that Paul had laid. And then this phrase again, each one must be careful how he builds on it, stresses a continuous action. There are going to be several people who build on the foundation as time goes by, and will continue to be. Several people who build on that foundation. All believers go through their lives and through history building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. All believers build on the same foundation. It's how we build that determines whether or not we're building wisely. And there's an implication here that this is a communal building project. It's, just, it's not just one person's responsibility. We all share in this responsibility. And Paul envisions here all Corinthians joined together, all believers joined together, building together, using the different gifts that God has given them to build the, on the foundation that's been laid. They are all members of the construction crew. And they've all been given specific gifts, unique gifts, talents, and abilities to do their part in building on the foundation that's been laid. Now, I brought my toolbox with me to, to try to illustrate a little bit of what I'm talking about here. And I selected a few tools to sort of show you what, what I mean. Paul's talking about different people, different gifts, different abilities to be used for building on the foundation, right? So if I can get my toolbox open, <laughs> I'll show you a couple different things, all right? So I've got a level that is also magnetic, um, <laughs> but I got a level, right? So you need a level for certain projects. Some projects you may not need a level for, but if you're building anything, at some point you're going to need a level, right? Um, if not, it's not going to work out so well. All right, things are not going to, those of you who do fine woodwork, I don't have the patience to do that. You use levels, and I've got a few clamps in here, I think, or at least one. You use, you use things like this all the time, right, for precise work. They, these serve a certain function. I've got, uh, let's see here, I've got a set of pliers here. I mean, you use pliers for various things, but there's specific use for these pliers, right? Certain projects, certain things, you'll need a set of pliers. Some things you won't need a set of pliers. Or, and I didn't bring a set, you may need uh, these types of pliers, Lyman's pliers versus needle nose pliers, right? I mean, there are different types for different functions. Um, 
You know, needle nose pliers uh, can be used for a lot of things, especially if you drop something down in a crack and have to get it out. And no, I'm just kidding. There are other things that you use them for, but there are different types of pliers. You, I, I brought back my wrench from last week. You know, some things you need to use a wrench for. Some people, if you've ever been without a wrench and tried to use a set of pliers to loosen a nut when you should have used a wrench, probably not going to work out too well. That nut's going to be stripped before it's all said and done. But, you know, you could try, but it's not going to work out so well. Uh, I brought a screwdriver with me. You know, this is a flathead screwdriver. I don't think I've got a Phillips head in here, at least not on top. But you got Phillips head, you got flathead, you got different screwdrivers for different functions. I could go on and on. I'm not going to drag out all the tools in here. But, you know, there's a hammer, right? Got a hammer. You got to use a hammer for certain projects. You ever try to use a screwdriver as a hammer when you didn't have a hammer? You ever try to use your dad's screwdriver? I've done that a couple of times. He wasn't very appreciative when I was younger, but you can try different things. But the point being this, okay, all that go around the world to say this. You know, if, if you've got different tools, they each have a unique, specific thing that they're used for. There might be several specific things, but each tool is designed to do something different. And if you're going to build something, you're going to need, depending on what you're building, you're going to need different tools for different parts, different pieces of that puzzle, that project. And, and some tools can't be used for the purpose of other tools. Well, you and I are the same way in terms of our gifts and abilities. God gave us all different gifts and abilities. There may be similar gifts. You and I may share similar gifts, but guess what? We're different individuals. And so those, even those gifts may function if we have similar gifts they're going to function in different ways. God gave you gifts that he didn't give me. And he gave me gifts that he didn't give you. And he put us together. And, and Caleb touched on this in the welcome. He talked about our imperfections. And guess what? We all have imperfections. And, and that makes up a, an interesting uh, hodgepodge of personalities. But it also he also gave us spiritual gifts that are all different. And, and different types of gifts and functions. And he puts us all together and uses each of us to build on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And it takes all of us. You can't do a project without all the tools you need, or not, at least not do it right. And, and, and God put us all together. And we won't function the way we're supposed to unless all of us are using the gifts that God has given us to build on the foundation that, that is Jesus Christ. All of us are involved in this, and Paul stresses that. And I want to build the right type of foundation in my life, and we should in the church as well. Why did they need to be careful? Because the foundation had been laid. Paul set the foundation. The foundation was Christ. And when he, you know, he did that when he initially brought them the gospel, the church was established. And no builder in the church should try to lay any other foundation than the one that had already been laid. That's one reason, because the foundation was there. And that foundation sets the course for the rest of the building. And if you try to change that, it's, it's not going to work out. The foundation also provides unity, because the foundation, you know, the building comes together on top of the foundation. And we, the church, our foundation, if it is Jesus Christ, his truth, 
then we will be united because we'll be working together toward the same goal, toward what, what Christ has established as his direction based on the rock-solid truth of his word and who he is. Paul is implying here what he said plainly before. Some leaders in the Corinthian church had begun to replace the true foundation with the foundation of their own making, what they wanted the foundation to be. They weren't careful to build on the gospel of Jesus, on Jesus Christ himself. They tried to build the church maybe on human wisdom versus the wisdom of God. Um, their own preferences, their own desires, what fit their lives and what they wanted to do versus what they didn't want to do instead of submitting to God's standard, that standard that we will all be judged by. They were building with human materials instead of spiritual materials. Some at least were. And any church leader who substitutes human imaginations for the true gospel of Christ has set aside the only acceptable foundation for the church. Anything other than Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ, is a foundation that is not sufficient. We builders need to understand this. Jesus is the only foundation. He is a sure foundation that can guarantee and secure our greatest longing for unity, stability, and even our identity. Who we are is determined by who he is and what he has made us to be. And if we find out who we are in Christ, if we find our place in his family, if we live in obedience, what comes with that is unity within the body of Christ, but also stability in our lives. Uh, Stability in the church. He created us and gave us all these gifts to work together. And the only foundation, we're building this foundation, the only foundation is Christ. God's kingdom is built on Jesus Christ and every individual life that pleases God, that desires, each of us who desire to please him, must be careful how we build on that foundation. Lesson number two. The reality of judgment clarifies my mission in life. It challenges me to serve him faithfully, to build the right way, but it also clarifies what I'm to be building and how I'm to be building. It clarifies my mission in life. We see the building process in verse 12. As long as we're alive, we should be building. If there is breath in our lungs, we should be building some way, somehow, on the foundation that's already been laid. Building a life, building a church, building Christian fellowship, service, all of these are acts of building, are part of the building process. And he, Paul also talks about in this passage, he, he talks about uh, that there are several ways that a community of faith can be demolished. One way, we've already seen, through a disregard for the foundation, right? Not building on the right foundation, building on some other foundation. And rather than recognizing that Jesus and, and Him crucified is the only sure foundation, we, we choose to build on things, on foundations that are more shakable. We, we look for foundations maybe in political causes, or we look for foundation in philosophical ideologies, or consumerism, or, or individualism. 
many, you could substitute any number of, th- of things that you could try to build on. Some of them in and of themselves not bad. But if you're building your life, the church especially, on those things, it's going to be dangerous. But we try to substitute maybe those things. But the building is actually destructive. One popular foundation in our culture is emotions. Now listen, emotions are good. Emotions are given to us by God. Each of us has personalities, characteristics that have been given to us by God. And emotions are a good thing. However, we have to be careful here. Because we cannot just, when it comes to our foundation in life, when it comes to the foundation of the church, you can't just rely on your feelings. Because we can fool ourselves. And our feelings can mislead us if we're not careful, if we're not guided by a standard that's separate from who we are. You've heard the phrase, the heart wants what the heart wants, right? Well, the Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all else. Your heart will lie to you. And tell you something's good that's not good. Just because I want it, just because I desire it, just because it makes me feel good for a moment doesn't mean that's what I should be building my life on or spending my time on. We have to build on something that's more lasting, that's, that's constant, that's unchanging. Emotions change. But the truth of Christ does not. Jesus Christ himself does not. The second way a community is demolished is through the use of of shoddy materials. The materials can be bad. You can have a good foundation, build a house with bad materials, it's going to deteriorate. It's not going to hold up. That verse, uh, verse 12, that word builds in verse 12. He lists, Paul lists some materials here. He lists gold, silver, and precious stones, and he compares them with wood, hay, and straw. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what he's trying to do here, comparing those two materials. But we're going to break it down nonetheless. He's not talking about salvation here. He's just talking about two different sets of materials and and how these materials are representative of spiritual service. Look at Proverbs 25, 4. Remove impurities from silver, and material will be produced for a silversmith. So he's talking about pure costly, valuable materials versus those that aren't. Gold, silver, costly stone. These are high-quality materials. They were then, they are now. They are permanent, lasting. They're nice to look at. They're shiny. They're pretty. They're valuable. They're hard to obtain. We can't obtain spiritual gifts on our own. We can't Obtain the the materials needed to build lives and churches on our own. Then you compare that with wood, hay, and straw. They're inferior, to say the least. They do not last. They will deteriorate. They're ordinary. Some may be even ugly. (laughs) They don't look so nice. Or at least they're not much to look at. They might be good for some things, but they're cheap. They're easy to obtain. And some materials that we may choose to build on may be okay, but they may not be the best for whatever it is that we're trying to do. Now, I kind of alluded to this a little bit, but I I want to come back to the screwdriver here. All right? I know none of you are guilty of doing this. Let's say you have a screw that needs to be loosened or tightened. It is a flathead screw 
but you can't find a flathead screwdriver, what might you be tempted to use? <laughs> Man, it'd take you five seconds. I mean, well, I just so happened to bring a kitchen knife. But let's say you really got to crank down on that screw to get it tight. What's probably going to happen to this, I mean, it's going to bend. You're not going to, it may work, but is it really going to work as well as this? No, it's not going to work as well as that. You can make it work for a time, but it's going to wear out, bend, or tear up the screw long before this will, what's designed to be used to loosen and tighten the screw that you're trying to loosen or tighten. Well, that's the same with whatever materials we choose to use that aren't God's materials, aren't the best materials. It may work for a time, but it's not the best, and it's going to wear out. It's not going to be as secure. It's not going to last as long, and that's really the concept, the idea of what Paul's trying to say here is that, 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 that good materials, the valuable materials God sets will be lasting, will be permanent are more valuable than anything we could use, anything we could come up with. Gold, it represents the greatest that I can give God. Giving Him my best. What He's giving me, using it for His glory. Straw is just the opposite. That represents, you know, just getting by. Giving Him the least. Whatever it takes just to get the job done, not doing it in a way that honors Him with everything that I have. It doesn't represent, the materials don't represent wealth. Um, they, they represent, the materials represent our responses. It doesn't even talk about spiritual gifts, the materials themselves. It doesn't really even talk about talents, the materials themselves. The materials represent believers' responses to what we have, those gifts, those 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 abilities, all of those things. It's our response to what we have and how well we serve the Lord with what he's given us. That's what the materials represent. They represent the works themselves. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Every Christian's a builder. We're all workers on this construction crew. We've all got a job. We've all got a, a part in this. And, and only his material is best because he is the only one worthy of worship and honor and glory. He is best. There are two great truths here okay, that I want you to, to kind of take away from the materials. One is that the first three materials are presented here as equally valuable. Now, listen, gold may be more valuable than silver, but we're not talking about monetary value. They're presented in a group as equally valuable. Okay, there's a lesson in that. Each of these tools performs a different function, but when you're doing a project, you need all the tools, which means all the tools are equally valuable. Now, you know, the hammer's going to make a lot more noise than the screwdriver. It's going to get more attention, Right? But that doesn't mean that the hammer's job is more important than the screwdriver's job. You need that, that, that tight screw or something's going to fall apart. Now, I, I, I've got, along with my hammer, I've got a block of wood and some nails. Let's say I'm building something. I'm using a hammer, nail, and, and nails, and wood, 
And I decide just to, like building blocks for the kid, just to put the blocks together. Are you going to want to live in that house? No. The wind comes, the house falls apart. You want somebody who's going to use the hammer, the nails, and the wood, right? Or screws and a screwdriver or screw gun or whatever. If you take a shortcut on the materials, you don't use all the materials, you're going to have a fragile structure. Well, all of us, with all of our gifts, there are different gifts. Some are out front, some are behind the scenes, some are more flashy than others, but they are all valuable. And if any of us are missing in this work, the structure is not going to be as strong. Not because God can't make it strong, but because we have responded in a way not using the gifts that he's given us in a way that glorifies him and in a way that shows that we are faithful to what he's called us to do. So all the materials are equally valuable. The first group. The second truth is this. Only the Lord determines which works are high quality and are low. We don't judge. He judges. And they're all important to him. And then this leads to the inspection. God will judge and reward his children according to the work that they accomplish. He's the one who inspects. He's the inspector. It's not you. It's not me. And we can judge good and bad. But ultimately, we're doing this because we know he's going to judge our works. He's going to judge how good of stewards we were. We need to pay careful attention to what we bring to the church. Let's zero in as we finish up on a few words in verse 13. Test as to the quality. Fire, it's the symbol of testing. Obvious. The quality of our works will become clear as they're tested through fire. Two types of materials. We got permanent, fruit that remains, and then we got perishable, that which does not remain. So how do we do this? Well, first we need to have pure motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. So we have pure motives. We've, we need to maintain holy conduct. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 again. For we must all be, appear before the beam of the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We need to practice sacrificial service. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. In a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay. Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master prepared for every good work. We've got to be purified. We've got to be set apart, which means we've got to give up some things. We've got to sacrifice and completely submit and commit to God. We need to use the gifts God's given us. In the end, the quality of our work is going to be revealed. Verses 14 and 15. There are two possible outcomes for church leaders here. One is that their work reveals good. All right? The work survives. Precious materials survive. And our work survives beyond our lives. We're invested in eternity, or it reveals bad. It's burned up, the verse says. He will experience loss, but he will be saved. This isn't talking about salvation. Again, 
He will be saved as only through fire. You get the picture of somebody running through flames. They don't get burned themselves. But when they come out, their clothes are charred and they smell like smoke. They made it, but just barely. Not that you're just barely saved, but that's the idea, right? Is that you made it to heaven, but based on your life, just barely. (laughs) You didn't do with what God gave you the most that he gave you the ability to do. You know, the useless will be all that's useless in our lives when we pass from this life into eternity. Everything that's useless is going to be burned away. It's not going to remain. If a leader's work survives the fire of God's judgment, there's going to be a reward. The reward of investing in eternity, but rewards that he gives us, which again, I don't know exactly what those are, but I'm interested to find out. Aren't you? If the leader's work is burned up by judgment, the true believer himself will be saved, but only like as if he escaped through the flames of a burning house by the skin of his teeth. I remember, and I may have told this before, but, you know, I grew, growing up, you know, dad and I, you know, my dad was always working on something and we worked on stuff together. And one time I was, we were re-roofing the house that I grew up in and we had knocked down the chimney and there was, there was dust all over the, just the, the, um, the plywood. We'd gotten everything off but the plywood and we were, we were getting rid of the chimney and there was dust everywhere and, and it was slippery and, and uh, my mom had just, and she always did this and, and uh, I think Mandy does the same thing now that we have a son who helps me. She would come out when we were doing something and, and she would say, Donnie, don't let him get hurt. She never said, be careful, Donnie. She just said, don't let him get hurt. And she had just said that. I mean, no sooner did she get back in the house till I was moving around and I started sliding on that dust. And there was nothing. My dad was too far away. I don't think he could have gotten a footing and caught me anyway. But I'm sliding towards the edge of the of the house, the roof, and I'm thinking of all these things. I don't think the fall would have killed me, but I would have been hurt really bad. And I'm thinking of all these things going through my head, and none of them are pleasant. All the possible outcomes to what's about to happen to me, and none of them are pleasant. Well, I got just to the, I mean, not far from the edge, and by the grace of God, somehow I stopped. Right before I went off. It may not have been as close as I remember, but it it was close. (laughs) It was enough to scare me. Now, when I got there, when I stopped, I was so happy to be alive and to not be hurt. But do you think I enjoyed the journey getting there? (laughs) Absolutely not. Those few seconds seemed like an eternity. Terror. (laughs) Fear of what might happen. Now, all of us who are followers of Christ, we're going to get to heaven. No one can take away your salvation. But are you enjoying the journey there? I'm not talking about warm fuzzies, happy all the time. Life is great. Life is tough. Life is challenging. There are ups and downs. But do you have joy in the journey? Do you have the joy of knowing that you are doing everything that God has called you to do with everything that he's given you to do it? None of us are perfect. But there's faithfulness, a consistent life of growth and faithfulness, and then there's wasting what God gives us. All of us are going to stand before him one day. And that should motivate us to serve him with enthusiasm, to share the gospel with urgency, and to do everything we can to make the most 
and to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us gifts, for saving us and setting us free and giving us gifts to be used for your glory, your service, the building of your church. You don't need us, but you use us. It is one of the mysteries of your plan for your kingdom. And I pray that we would, first of all, make sure that we are a part of the construction crew by accepting the grace, the gift that you've offered through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here today, anybody listening, watching online, if they haven't accepted that gift of salvation, that they would cry out to you now. If they're here, that they would maybe come during this time of decision and find out how to make that decision. For those of us who are yours, let's just use this opportunity. Spirit, evaluate our hearts. Holy Spirit, show us areas where we're not building properly. Show us areas where we are falling, falling short, not being good stewards. Just convict us. And help us have the strength to be faithful, to confess any sin that exists of unfaithfulness, and to commit ourselves by your power and strength to serving faithfully, using the gifts that you've given us, the abilities you've given us to advance your kingdom, to build your church. Lord, just speak to us in this time. Show us how to respond. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?